From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this show brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you need any sort of improved internet presence or want to just improve your marketing, call EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. And also, while you're at it, sign the showthesafeties.com petition and get things rolling. We got to continue to get more uh, momentum on that. But that's a website that EPR Creations helped put together for me. Something on the cheap, pretty pretty much on the cheap, since I just needed someplace to do a uh, a petition. And they got it done quickly, got it done cheaply. Again, best in the business. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. All right, so we're going to talk about a few different things today. First of all, we're going to do our quick and dirty evaluation of what we saw against Alabama State. Uh, not a whole lot really to talk about there because, quite frankly, it's Alabama State and Florida State took care of business. But hey, they're four and Boldell. They've managed to make a bowl game with Odell Hagens as the interim coach twice now, and uh, he's taken care of business. And there have been a, it's been some interesting stuff that he's had to say over the uh, over the past week and a half or so uh, as people have asked him questions in post game and all of that <clears throat> and. Just thinking about that first after the first game, you know what 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 did you uh, you know who made the decision? What did you say about you know the possibility of Jordan Travis playing? And he just said, "Well, uh, I told Kendall Bryles, you just run your offense." And I don't remember the rest of the quote, but it was something along the lines of basically, "I'm, I'm not going to get in your way. You just you just do what you do." <laughs> and there were some people that were like, "Shots fired." Some other folks were saying, "Well, no, obviously, you know, Odell is so classy; he would never." have any sort of subtext there. This is just a uh, taken out of context or whatever. I'll tell you this though. Eldell Hagens is all Florida state 100% of the time. And you know, if he does feel like certain things may have, may not have been done as, as well as they could have been done in certain cases, he's not going to be shy about, about making that, uh, making that clear. Uh, listen, Odell Hagens is an honest man and he's not going to try to trick you in what he says. And, uh, and he's also, listen, the guy is, he is Florida State at this point in terms of how that stuff works. And he had another doozy in the press conference after this one where uh, he was asked about the absence of swag surfing and some of the other things uh, in terms of pregame and, and, and all that, and, but specifically swag surfing before kickoffs and all that. And he was asked whether that was his decision. And after saying, what, what is swag surfing? <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. And they explained that, you know, it's the pre-kickoff thing that they'd been doing. He's like, oh, well, I told our kids, you must earn certain things at Florida State University. I'm not going to give it to you as as a head coach. I said, we need to understand that. You must earn certain things. That's exactly what I told them. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, um, if the other one wasn't a situation where he was commenting on uh, anything else, uh, on things being done otherwise previously, this one uh, I think certainly was, and this is just expressing that Odell believes that the culture of Florida State needs to be a certain way, and this is a guy who saw it, who is a part of it, who is one of the big components of it throughout the dynasty, and who understands that culturally speaking, at Florida State. Yeah, you can you can talk, you can dance around, you can do lots of stuff, but you have to earn that first. 
and see a lot of people. This is something that I've talked about with a lot of players who, a lot of former players and guys who actually, you know, who actually played as opposed to me, you know, I was a practice dummy, but guys saying, look, we had a rule. You could dance on, on kickoff once we were up 35. We had, we had that rule. We had, you know, you, and guys remembering this stuff, like, look, when you get up by this amount, you can do whatever. But until we're up by that amount, you, you, you stick to business and you keep your mouth shut. Well, Odell has very clearly gone back to that kind of approach in terms of uh, how he's doing things and has, uh, has said, nope, we're not going to, we're not going to dance around. We're not coming out without our pads on. We're not going to do this stuff until, you know, we take care of business. And actually with the pad stuff, well, that stuff's not going to happen anyway. So again, it just shows you some things in terms of culturally how, how far they're going to have to go and how much is going to have to be addressed in terms of culture for the next coach. And again, lest anybody think that I'm blaming Willie Taggart for this exclusively. No, 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 no. The, the culture was already to a point where in the final uh, seasons under Fisher, you know, you had the situation where guys had to sign a promissory note to sign a promise that they would actually play hard. You know, these sorts of things. I mean, culture has not been where it should be for a long time. And there's going to be, there's going to need to be a culture rebuild. And, you know, they, they made some improvement there. I mean, they definitely made improvement in a lot of different areas. I mean, you could see in uh, Tayshawn Reed's uh, athletic profile uh, where he interviewed Abdul Bello and uh, uh, a couple of other seniors. Uh, who was it? Bello, uh, Ricky Aguayo, and, uh, and uh, Levante Taylor. And they all had some really interesting things to say. And all of them had very high praise for, for Willie Taggart in terms of the, uh, the uh, example that he, that he set for them, how, how much attention he put on getting things right off the field and all of that. And all of that's going to go down in, ter- in terms of helping rebuild the culture. All of that's going to be influential. But there's still a lot of stuff that needs to get fixed. And the next guy is going to have to do that for sure. So I thought that was interesting coming out of the, uh, out of the Alabama State game. But, um, but yeah, they're... Uh, <laughs> This Alabama State game was such that, you know, Florida State knew they didn't need to play a couple of their their top guys. I mean, Akers hasn't really practiced in weeks because of uh, that toe injury that was sustained in the second half when they were up by over 20 points against Syracuse, and they continued to run him into the ground. And, uh, you know, he hasn't been able to practice basically ever since then. He's just come out and, and uh, done the walkthroughs on Thursdays and then played in the games. Well, in this one, they knew they didn't even need him for the game, which tells you kind of all you need to know about how much there really is to analyze in this game. Now, there are some things in terms of uh, some of the young guys that played in, in the really a lot of the most interesting stuff has to do with the stuff that happened in terms of uh, who played and how they looked in the fourth quarter. And I'll be focusing on that in my uh, breakdown, the video breakdown this week. I'll also finally get the Miami, the last, the last stand of Willie Taggart out uh, this week as well. Uh, and then we'll, we'll do a little bit more discussion of some of that stuff, but, uh, this was a game where, you know, otherwise, basically this is a tune up. You're trying to get a few things, right. You're trying to toss some stuff in there. That's going to set some stuff up for Florida and, uh, just make sure you, you, you get out having executed and, and gotten some things right. Fundamentally offensively, I thought they played reasonably well. Uh, again, not a really good team that they played against. Uh, the, the turnover, the, the interception was not a good one. It was not a not a good not a good decision or throw by Blackman, and an even worse effort by 
DJ Matthews not making sure that that ball wasn't picked off. Ultimately, the safety beat him to the beat him to the spot, and he's got to get there. But um, there were it was up and down. I mean, the first play was exactly what you would expect against this kind of team. You know, Terry Terry made it look easy. Thing is, the second play should have been a touchdown too. But uh, but Blackman had a wide open DJ Matthews, and then instead of pulling the trigger, he double clutched, second guessed himself, and then pulled the trigger too late and then threw it behind him for an incompletion when that should have been a touchdown as well. They should have had, it should have been 14, nothing after two offensive plays, but that kind of is where the offense is at this point. Um, we saw more from Jordan Travis, what 69 yards rushing. I think, uh, looking at it now. Yeah. The, uh, Jordan Travis had four carries for 69 yards, including a 61 yarder. Uh, and you got to wonder like, why did this guy not play? Why was he, um, you know, again, like I said on the, on, the, on the last discussion of this, normally I trust coaches to go off of what they see in practice. And obviously we don't all see that. And, you know, you got to kind of trust that. But at a certain point, like, dang, what were you all missing? And yeah, only three of seven for 71 yards. Had a long of 63 on that, which is a you know a little pop pass, so not much there. And didn't look real good as a thrower. I mean, there was a uh, one of my bellwether throws, benchmark throws for me is a is is how well do you throw the bubble? Because it's not actually the easiest throw. And if you're accurate on it, it shows me that you're an accurate quarterback. Well, he you know airmailed a a uh, a bubble that should have been among the easier throws that he had. Uh, even though again, they're not actually nearly as easy a throw as you expect. But the location on that showed me that he, just in terms of as a thrower, not exactly where you want him, but he did show that he can make enough throws to keep a defense honest. And if you need to use his legs, it makes a lot of sense to have him out there. If you're not doing a whole lot, completing, completing passes and threatening, threatening the defense with the other quarterbacks, you know, bringing a guy who can run makes a lot of sense, but um, yeah, well, go figure. Uh, other than that, Defensively, I thought they actually played pretty poorly. Uh, a lot of missed assignments, a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities for for turnovers or for for tackles for loss that were just missed. Uh, just pretty sloppy defensively. I thought defensively they they really played poorly overall. Uh, linebackers rushing in the wrong gap. You know, defensive tackles losing their rush lanes. Uh, yet again, it's what the sixth dropped interception by. Uh, by Dent this year. I mean, the guy's going to need, somebody needs to get him his mojo back, that's for sure, because, I mean, he's a, he's going to be a really good player, but he's going to have to start making plays when they hit his hands. Uh, also, you know, just a couple busts. I mean, the one bust for an easy touchdown, uh, you have a little bit of a miscommunication with those, uh, with the with the defensive backs. You've got an in-out uh, concept for the offense, and uh that's where Becker actually has to. He's got. He's responsible for the outside guy there, and just didn't take him. He stayed with the uh, with the outside player who's lined up outside. When he came inside, you gotta you gotta banjo that, split that, and that's his responsibility. Leaves him wide open. There you go. You gotta gotta communicate. But one thing I did find interesting, and I went back and I took a look, a closer look also at the Boston College game, just in terms of what they called and and. Uh, how often they were in different looks and all that. And it was interesting because against Miami, one of the things that that uh, I mentioned in the in the pregame podcast, in the game plan podcast, was that against Miami, I would not run a whole lot of tight front. I would run a lot more four-man front, that sort of thing, to try to deal, to try to force Miami to run inside. 
and keep them from being able to to run as much on the edge because ultimately Miami had had struggled more to th- run the ball inside all year and they'd run well on the edges and Florida State had shown some vulner- vulnerability on the edges all year. Well, they ran more than 50% tight. Uh, and again, tight front is where you have uh, you have a three-man big defensive line there and basically all three of your of your defensive linemen are lined up on the inside eye of the offensive tackles or inside of that. So normally tight front is you've got a zero technique immediate head up over the center. And then you've got two defensive tackles over the inside eye of the offensive tackles. So, you know, they're uh, in what's called a four eye technique, which is just a little bit outside of three technique, which is the gap between the guard and the, the guard and the uh, offensive tackle. So you're, basically taking away the run on the inside there. You're trying to occupy all five blockers with those three guys basically against the run. So you're forcing teams to have to run to the perimeter, which then everybody else can chase. But if they're already a good perimeter run team and they can seal you inside and maybe pull somebody to get to the edge, then that's where your weakness is going to be. Uh, and, and Florida State struggled with that a lot this year. Well, they ran about you know, 50 or 60% tight front stuff against, against Miami and more odd front just in general, when they weren't in tight, they were in 50, uh, 50 personnel, a bunch where again, three defensive linemen out there without as much edge support. Uh, they were in, you know, traditional odd front looks probably 80% of the time. And that, didn't go very well for them against Miami. What's been interesting is the last two weeks against Boston College and against Alabama State, they've run almost no tight. They've run uh, mostly G, which is a form of a four-man front where you have, uh, it's actually what Virginia Tech has done as a default for years, but basically you're going to cover up the two guards with your uh, with your defensive tackles. One of them is more in a one technique. The other is more in a three technique, but each of them is a little bit over the guard, comparatively speaking, uh, in those in those lineups. They're just shaded just a little bit more to the guard than to the tackle or the center in those. They have they ran 40G as their defensive front by default about 80% of the time the last two games. And th- that's interesting in part because that's Harlan Barnett's traditional look. They've basically gone back. Oh, and also in terms of the secondary, they were in they were in match four, or what Nick Saban calls uh, uh, cover seven. Most of the time, about eighty percent of the time, the last two weeks they were in forty G cover four slash seven. You know, depending on you know if you want to call it cover four, then that's what it, I mean. That's what it is. But it's you know in Nick Saban's terminology, it's cover seven basically. So uh, you're. Uh, you, you, that was that's the default in Harlan Barnett's defense. That's what they ran a lot of last year. And the last two games, what have they done? They went right back to Harlan Barnett's pre- uh, preferences, which tells you something just a little bit, doesn't it? Ooh, interesting, huh? So um, I think also it should be noted that Marvin Wilson was out after the Miami game. And one of the reasons that they wanted to play tight is to get their three defensive tackles who they felt were their three, three of their say four best defensive players on the field at once. So you, and you can do that more when you go tight uh, because you're getting three defensive tackles on the field. And with Wilson out, you don't have the personnel really to play tight. So I can see them making that, that 
that change in part due to that personnel change, but I don't think it's coincidental that basically the calls in terms of uh, secondary as well went from something different to Harlan Barnett's traditional look. I, I don't think that's coincidental. It also accounts for some of the missed assignments that we've seen because they're you know basically reverting to what the defensive coordinator prefers to call. And they haven't repped it as much this year. So you're going to get some difficulties on defense as a result of that because they've not been doing that as much this year. But again, that tells you something about what was happening previously. So interesting stuff there. Uh, beyond that, I thought there were some uh, some interesting things to see in terms of, uh, of players who uh, participated, who uh, hadn't really played much this year. I thought overall, uh, we saw some really interesting things from uh, from Kevon Glenn, who looked. I mean, he had a he had a tackle for loss there, I believe it was, a, or at least a tackle there. But I thought it was a tackle for loss, if I remember right. But he looked good coming uh, coming in at linebacker. I thought, uh, let's see, uh, I thought Kalen Deloach also looked promising there. Had a tackle. I thought Quayshon Fuller looked uh, looked pretty decent at the edge. Uh, when when he got out there, I thought um, Jamarcus Chapman actually looked you know he he looked passable as a defensive tackle in terms of his movement skills. He's got to get stronger. He's got to get a little bigger, but in terms of his overall movement, you got to be really pleased with what you see there. Uh, I thought Malcolm Lamar looked like an offensive tackle playing defensive tackle once again. Uh, that's a guy that the next coach needs to convince to play defensive tackle from day one. That's got to be one of the one of the most important moves that they're going to make there. I thought uh actually it was it was interesting watching Chaz Neal. It's the most most action he's got. I thought he looked okay. Just doesn't move quite as well as you would like in terms of how smoothly he could uh he could move in terms of ideal for an offensive tackle. But not bad. I mean Certainly not uh, not a big drop off from what they've had at, uh, at that position. Not a huge drop off. Uh, overall, you know, you see the length, you see some potential there. Just not uh, not a guy that was ready this year, but somebody that I'm not going to give up on at this point. So, be interesting to see how he develops over the over the course of the next next year with if they can get a decent uh, strength coach in there and and work with a new staff, who knows, or maybe with the same offensive, offensive staff. I mean, uh, Clemens would, would definitely have this group better next year than they were this year. So, so we'll see. Um, I thought, uh, but like I said, uh, Lamar looked like he, again, looked like he, he should be playing offense. Uh, beyond that, not a whole lot really to report. Uh, just a, uh, a solid overall overall day uh, from from some of those young guys that that showed that there's at least some talent left in the program for when when some of the big fish leave but there's going to need to be a lot of improvement there and uh, and again I'll, I'll highlight some of these players uh, on the video stuff that I'll do this week but I think that'll pretty much wrap it for the Alabama State uh, Alabama State game not a whole lot left to to say there and before we transition into the second part of the podcast, I want to thank my second sponsor. That is Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. As always, I'm just going to make the statement that if you are selling or buying a house in the greater Jacksonville area and you're not going through Lewis to do it, then, well, you know, that's, that's just stupid. He's the best in the business. 
You need to get you, if you're going to do any of that stuff. If you're going to do anything real estate related in the uh, in, in the Greater Jacksonville area, go through Lewis. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. As always, very much appreciated in your support of the uh, podcast as well. So the next segment, we're going to talk about the coaching search and the current situation, and a little bit of what happened uh, in terms of some of that other stuff. And uh, and and those of you who listened to the previous episodes on this will remember that when I first talked about potential coaching uh, options. I didn't even talk about Bob Stoops. I didn't think he would be uh, a legitimate option. And then uh, and then afterwards, uh, the, the next time I said, well, Florida State actually has been regarding him as a, as the number one in the search and and continues to, uh, to pursue him. And there's been some res- uh, re- uh, reciprocation there. But ultimately, you know, didn't really expect Stoops to take the job because uh, I had someone actually who was well connected on the on the Stoops side, and that person kept saying throughout the process he's not going to end up taking the job. It's not happening. Not going to end up taking the job. And so you know I was hearing a lot of confidence from the Florida State side. I mean I'm talking about from the very highest levels of the Florida State side. Florida State really believed that he was it was a done deal. And of course it's justifiable to ask why would people at the highest levels at Florida State believe it was a done deal if it wasn't. Well, let me let me give you a another example. So back when I was in high school, my mom uh, became a real estate agent, and uh, you know, in order to make make some extra money, and ultimately she she learned to embrace a specific rule about real estate transactions, and that was you never celebrate a sold house. You never celebrate that you've made a sale until. You are two traffic lights past closing. That was her rule. You have to go two traffic lights past closing, and then you can begin to celebrate that you got a sale. Because until you're two traffic lights past closing, that some stuff falls apart. It's basically the idea that, you know, you might have someone say, you know, until pen hits paper or whatever, but somebody might sign all that paperwork, and then all of a sudden something happens, and all of that stuff gets shredded before every, before it's all exchanged and legally taken care of and all that but it's only once you're two tra- traffic lights past closing that you can really celebrate. You you don't have a done deal in real estate until then. Two lights past closing. Well, Florida State was in a you know could you could extend the same kind of thing to a coaching search. Let's just say let's imagine hypothetically speaking. Let's imagine that we're talking about uh, a major job opportunity that gets negotiated out by, let's say you have a, 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 an important agent in all of this and you have your representative does the first level of negotiation and you've got certain things that you have put on the table as these are the sorts of demands that would have to be met for me to even listen to anything. And then let's say that the group that is interested in hiring you puts those things on the table and says, okay, we're willing to meet those demands. Well, then you might actually consider, you might come to the table and say, well, you know, I... I hadn't thought that this would actually be a possibility that I might, you know, take another job, but maybe, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. And at that point, you're feeling pretty good if you're the potential employer. Like, okay, I've met all the demands. Now we'll see what happens. At that point, though, that's definitely not a done deal, right? So, but you might have some over, over-optimistic over people that would suggest that, you know, hey, look, we, we've met all the demands. We're definitely going to get get this person. But let's imagine, again, hypothetically, that the way that this kind of contract would work is that 
once you've actually come to terms on this sort of thing, you might sign, say, a memorandum of agreement or something like that, that, you know, okay, look, here's where if, if, if things are going to come through, you can go ahead and sign this. And then, you know, it won't be official official until, say, you come through a three-day waiting period or whatever. And at, at that point, either party can pull out without penalty. But once the three days over, it's a legally binding thing and we'll get uh, an actual contract together. But, you know, you sign it and we're, we're, we're agreeing that at least we're, we're ready to move forward on this. And if you got your, if you were one of the people that was in the search side of this thing and you got somebody to sign that to say, yeah, you know what? I agree to these terms. It would be understandable for someone to conclude that we got our guy to conclude we done deal. It's over. Pen has hit paper. But just like in real estate, when you might have the paper signed, you might be at closing, you might, it, it's done. No, 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 no. It's not done until your two traffic lights pass clothing, closing. Two traffic lights pass clothing might be more interesting. But until your two traffic lights pass closing, it's not done. In the same way, if a coach signs an agreement in terms, it's not done until the right of pulling out is over, until that period, that that waiting period where, and, and you know, it's smart to have those sorts of things in these contracts because it's possible that somebody just wants to kind of feel it for a few days and be like, okay, I've taken the job now. You know, do I, do I like this feeling or do I not? I mean, my wife has had, had a habit at different points of buying something and then you just kind of hang it in your closet for a couple days or for a week, for two weeks. And then you decide, nah, I really didn't, really don't want it. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a function to that sort of thing. You want to make sure that, that everybody's on board. So it's totally plausible. It's totally possible. Let's just imagine that, you know, that sort of thing is the kind of thing that happened with, with Florida State. You could totally see how people believed and people at, at the very highest levels believed that they had their guy. It's a done deal. But it wasn't a done deal. Because, again, you know, if we can imagine this kind of hypothetical scenario, that's the sort of thing that can happen. And, you know, again, from the stoop side, the, the, the tone never changed. The stoop side was always saying, he's not going to take the job. Just not going to take the job. I don't care what's happening. Ultimately speaking, when rubber hits road, he's going to end up not taking the job. So that's what I kept hearing. Uh, it actually became pretty difficult to to keep believing that because the Florida state confidence was so high. I mean, I was hearing from a lot of different places and getting a lot of different texts and so on. Like, look, it's, but the thing is until you have things from both sides, you can't really roll with it on something like that. And that's a little different than like with the Taggart situation a couple of years ago, I actually, I, I was getting information from somebody who was connected to the Taggart side and was filling me in on, look, here's what's happening. And so I knew you know, a couple of weeks in advance, like this is, this is going down and, you know, had, had a, a better, a better idea that I don't have that, uh, that level of, of contact, you know, on both sides very often. But in that case, I kind of got lucky. Uh, in this case, I got lucky again, cause I, I knew someone who had a, a close contact on the stoop side, but I don't expect to have that necessarily for most of the coaching search because, you know, I'm just not that well connected. There are people who are much better connected. A lot of the national people who are connected to agents and all that. You're going to see a lot of that stuff broken there. But what you will know is what you, what you will notice, and this is just something to think about in terms of who to trust when it comes to a lot of these sorts of things. What you will notice is that a lot of the Florida state side of things, 
those folks are going to have good connections at Florida State, but they're probably not going to have as good of connections elsewhere. And until you have both sides that are saying something's going down, that's just the way things are going to work. So uh, you're, you're probably best off listening and waiting for, for some of the national voices to chime in on this. Now, in terms of where Florida State goes from here, now that Bob Stoops is not a, ca- not a candidate, uh, you know, you've got to start thinking about what the possible options are. And my, my opinion has not really changed here. I continue to say that if it was my decision, if I was the one making this hire, I would, I would wait out Matt Campbell and I would make him say no. I'd put what I need to on the table for Iowa State's Matt Campbell and I would make him say no. I might not be able to get him. I'm, and I'm not sure Florida State could get Matt Campbell. I mean, he's very happy in Ames, Iowa. He, uh, he's been a Midwest, Midwest guy, so it's not like he's hankering to get out of the Midwest or anything. It, it would be a tough, he would be a tough guy to pull, but I would make him say no. That's the guy I would want. You're talking about, and, and there are a couple reasons for this. So let me think, let me, let me take you through a few things on my end of things, on, on, my, on my rationale here. Number one, uh, if you're hiring a guy from a, from a group of five level, I think there are a couple, a couple of interesting things to, to consider here. One is the, the temptation at the group of five level is to go and hire the guy who is, who has the most success at the group of five level. Like, Hey, look, this guy, Luke Fickle's having a lot of success at Cincinnati. Let's, if he can, if he can win at Cincinnati, he can win, you know, where that's not really necessarily true because not all group of five programs are made equally right? It's not, and just like in the power five, there are different programs that are different levels in terms of where they stand in their own conference pecking order and all of that. So if you think about it in terms of the group of five, there are certain programs where you can win much more easily because of access to talent, just like in the power five. It's much easier to win at say UCF or USF than it is at Ohio University. Because UCF and USF can get Florida talent that kind of slipped through the cracks and all that. But if you're a good evaluator and you can get a few of those kids that maybe didn't have the grades to, to confidently get into some of those other places to get into the big, big three or, or go SEC or ACC. If you can find some of those guys that, you know, they competed with some of those guys, maybe he's an inch too short or maybe he's, you know, just a little bit uh, outside the, the bounds of what the big programs are going for. You can land more of those kids. Memphis has some advantages in terms of, of location. Houston to some degree. But, you know, if, if, if you're looking at that, a lot of those AAC programs, the ones where you're going to have success, Cincinnati can recruit like Indiana or Purdue, despite the fact that they're not playing in a Power 5 conference. That's a program where you can have an edge just in terms of the kids you can get because you're in, you're in Southern Ohio and kids, are gonna, kids who couldn't go to, say, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame... Once they're out of that tier, they're going to look at Kentucky. They're going to look at Indiana. They're going to look at Cincinnati. And Cincinnati's going to get some of those kids just because of where they're located. And it's similar, again, to a place like USF or UCF. So what I would caution against is just finding a guy that has had some success at the group of five level and, being, and, and saying, okay, he's won there. Uh, well, you know, okay, what kind of wins have you got? And historically speaking, if you really want to look at the coaches who've had the best transitions 
to the power five level, I would suggest that by and large, get the best coach you can who's had who's who's one and one big in the Mac, the Mid-American Conference. And the reason for that is if you look at the Mac, those teams, there is a tremendous amount of parity in the Mac. By and large, if a coach is winning in the Mac, it's because it's not because he's gone out and out recruited a bunch of people just because of the nature of the program he's at. I mean, the difference between University of Toledo and universe and uh, Miami University and uh, say uh, Eastern or Western Michigan or Northern Illinois and so on, there is a little bit of an advantage. Like Toledo's uh, maybe slightly higher than some of these others, but Bowling Green, you know, Bowling Green, Toledo. Uh, uh, Miami University, all of these programs might as well be the same. I mean, it's the same tier. You're not, there, nobody has a, a recruiting edge over anybody else. If you're winning big at a program like that against your peer schools, it's because you're a good coach. And all you have to do is look at, you know, the cradle of coaches is historically, you know, the, there's a tradition that, um, that Miami of Ohio, Miami University is a, you know, it's called the cradle of coaches because of all the great coaches who've come through there, the guys who had success at other programs. And you look at, just look at who, at some of the coaches that, that coached at Miami of Ohio, Paul Brown, Woody Hayes, Sid Gilman, Era Parsegian, Bo Schembechler, Bill Mallory, Jim Tressel, Ron Zook, maybe not the best example there, but Dick Crum, uh, Randy Walker, John Harbaugh, Gary Moeller, Dick Tomey, Terry Hepner, Sean McVay, all of those guys coached at Miami of Ohio. <laughs> That's crazy. And, you know, you look at, at, at other programs in that conference, and what you've got, you've got Akron, Bowling Green, Buffalo, Kent State, Miami, Ohio, Ball State, Central Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Northern Illinois, Toledo, and Western Michigan. All of those are pretty much, you know, if you win there, you're winning because you're, you're, you're out coaching your opponents by and large. So to me, if I'm going to look for a mid-major coach who's had a lot of success, I'm going to look there. And then the other thing is, if you can find a mid-major coach like that who then goes to another program and has success there, that's, that's repeating that. So Urban Meyer, for example, had success at Bowling Green, immediately turned that program around, and then went and had success at Utah, which, is not, which at, that at the time was not a Power 5 program. But he repeated that success at those two places. And then you go, okay, <laughs> this guy can coach. Well, there you go. And if you get then on top of that, a guy who does it in the Mac and then does it at a lower tier group of five program and begins to make that program win at a, at a level that it hasn't. Now you've convinced me that that guy can really coach. And to me, there are two coaches on Florida State's board that fit that. One is Matt Campbell. You realize that Matt Campbell, is, that, that there are two coaches in Iowa State history with a winning record at Iowa State. Two. Earl Bruce, who went on to coach at Ohio State, and Matt Campbell. In the 128-year history at Iowa State, Iowa State has beaten Texas and Oklahoma nine times against 90 losses and two ties. Of those nine wins, Matt Campbell, in his four years there, owns two of them. They've won more than eight games three times. I think it's three. It might be four. Matt Campbell has two of those the last two years, and they're about to do it again this year. 
<laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that would be, listen, if Florida State hired Matt Campbell, I would be his primary hype man <laughs> because I think the guy can really coach. And also, if you think about from Florida State's end, he's a former uh, offensive line coach who really has done a great job of identifying and then overseeing the development of, of great line of scrimmage play everywhere he's been. Doesn't hurt. And he's had, you know, he's, he's a, a really solid offensive mind and also oversaw a, the change to an extremely innovative defensive system. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked to the guy about this and, and what they did when in their second year at Iowa State when they determined that the four-two-five defense that they'd run at Toledo with success couldn't work given the, temp- the, the talent deficit that they had and the personnel that they had at Iowa State. They couldn't run it in the Big 12. So they, second game of the season, completely scrapped what they did before and went and came up with an entirely different system, installed it, moved personnel around to find out where they went, and they've had success there ever since. And teams are going there to learn from them. Clemson and Venables went and they spent time with Iowa State staff this last offseason to try to improve what they do defensively. And we've all seen what happened this year with Clemson, despite the fact that personnel-wise up front, they're not as good as they've been. So to me, that's my number one. My number two also fits that. P.J. Fleck is a guy that he had success at Western Michigan. I mean, seriously. <laughs> so the guy, the guy won 13 games at Western Michigan. And then... He went to Minnesota, and yes, Minnesota has had an extremely soft schedule this year, but you only play, you can only play the teams you play. And to be, what, 8-1 and one now? Or 9-1, and one, or whatever they are? 9-1? and one? And, you know, they played Iowa really close in, in, at, uh, at Kinnick this last week. I think he's a really good coach. And again, I think he's, he's kind of more of an urban type uh, in terms of, of what you're looking at there. So to me, those are the top two. I would still put Jeff Brom in that discussion as well in terms of, I just, I think Jeff Brom is a really good coach, but I don't think you could, you could market him. So he kind of drops off the list beyond that. I don't think you can afford Matt rule. And I think he's going to the NFL before he goes anywhere else. And then my, my second tier starts with Mike Norvell from Memphis, who I think is a really good coach. And I, I got a really good testimonial from, a, uh, a one of my buddies in the coaching business who who said, "Look, I've I've looked at what Nor- Norvell does. Florida State should hire Norvell." And just in terms of Norvell has developed really good assistant talent, lost it to other schools, and then hired really good guys and developed them. And some of those assistants that he's developed and have moved on to other schools would totally rejoin him if he got a big job. So that speaks highly of 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 that. Now. There's some questions about potential skeletons in the closet with Norvell. I'm not sure that those are legitimate because Norvell is a guy that he may well have turned down Ole Miss and Arkansas the last time. And at that point you do that and maybe, you know, stuff gets spread around about you, you know, in terms of why you would have done that. Um, you know, maybe they dug something up. Maybe they did. I don't know. But that's a, that's the question. So you'd want to make sure you investigated that. And then James Franklin from Penn State, you definitely want to kick the tires on him and Gus Malzahn. If either one of them want in, then you you definitely talk to them because either one of those guys becomes, they, they kind of go up to, to uh, level one with Campbell and Fleck. If you know one of those guys actually wants on board, you, you may hire one of those guys because they've proven that they can do it at a Power 5 school at a top program. And I know some of you out there are going to go, seriously, Malzahn? Really? Uh, yeah, the guy took Auburn to a national title game with Saban at 
at Alabama with one of his like legit best teams, they beat that team. Yeah, I know it's a kick six and all that, but that was a good, that was a, that Auburn team was not as good and they coached out of their minds to get there. And he's also, yes, I know he had, uh, you know, a transcendent quarterback with Cam uh, that year, but that national title that Auburn won, that was his offense more than anything else. And you look at what happened when he left, they fell off the, they fell off immediately. And when he came back, they were once again competitive. And you put, you take him out of the SEC West and you put him in the ACC and that guy can coach. It's a, it's a different thing. So, you know, that's somebody I'd talk to, but those are the guys I would be focusing, focusing on, uh, you know, basically your, your top tier, Matt Campbell, uh, PJ Fleck, James Franklin, and, uh, and then, uh, and Gus Malzahn, you know, those guys, if I, if I could get any of those guys to talk to me, those would be my first port of call. After that, you go to, uh, to Mike Norvell, you go, you know, from what I understand, Florida State's already interviewed Brent Venables. Uh, you go to Tony Elliott, potentially, and you figure out what you would do with one of those guys. That's kind of your tier two, in my view. I think Florida State really needs somebody who has head coaching experience and somebody who's got outstanding, I mean, outstanding organizational and CEO skills. You've got to have that. As I said before, my Butch Jones rule, my CEO rule, you've got to have a guy who is an outstanding CEO to be able to run this program. All the more because of the administrative issues that Florida State's going through and also all the replacement stuff. You're going to have to have a guy that can, that can do that. Now, one name I have not mentioned yet, and that is, of course, Odell Hagens. And I don't want to comment too much on this. I know he's supposed to be interviewing today. This is Sunday. Uh, and, you know, I don't know... I, so I love Odell. I think Odell is synonymous with Florida State. With uh, and, and culturally speaking, he knows the place inside and out, and he's he's unbelievable. He's a great coach. He's a better human being. Uh, you know, he has the respect of the team now. Uh, the guy obviously uh, carries a lot of clout in terms of when he walks into the into the room. People, families, rightly trust him because he they know that he's telling them the truth. There's a lot there. But if I were the administration, I would have to see the plan. And I would have to see the organizational aspect of things and all of the things in, to make sure that the CEO stuff, the organization stuff that needs to be done much better than it was under the last, uh, under the last coach and really under the last uh, two coaches, if you want to call Jimbo 2.0 after 2014 or so, uh, a different coach than prior to 2014, uh, really under the last two coaches, some stuff needs to be better, done better than they did it. I want to see what you're going to do to improve that. I want to see who your connections are in terms of uh, bringing in an outstanding strength and conditioning coach. Who are you going to bring as a a strength and conditioning coach? What's your plan in terms of assistance? Who are you going to, and I want to know all of that in advance. I don't know all of that in advance. So it's harder for me to say that I really think that Odell would be a good hire uh, because you have to have that network built up as a head coach in in order to make sure that you can hire the best possible people around you. Now, if he could show me that, okay, you've got this and this possibilities as your strength and conditioning coach, and you know, you've already gotten a thumbs up that they would come if you, if, if you, you, go, you got the job, and they both check out. And this is what you're going to do with the coordinator situation, and I think that's a good idea. This is who you're going to bring in. As it, I want to see the plan. I want to see the, you know, your list of other guys that you would have on the list if you have to replace assistants. All of these other things in terms of the big picture 
And that's part of what the what the search firm is there to do. They're, they're there to help ask those questions. Uh, if the administration doesn't know to ask them, I would want to see the answers to those questions before I ever made that hire. And again, it, it might not be a bad hire, but I would really want to know those questions. And I, wanna, I would want to make sure that he really has the vision, organizationally speaking, and he has the the all of those other pieces in place. Otherwise, you're better off going with someone who has all of that stuff already built and who has built it before and can make those phone calls and already has the network in place. And that's, you know, you've got to have a great cabinet to be a great president. I mean, it's just the way it is. So, yeah, that's, I'm going to go ahead and wrap here. I was going to do a question and answer. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do a question and answer show early this week and, uh, and I'll address some of those things. I'll, I'll release it uh, probably Tuesday uh, and then, uh, and then look a little bit at Florida. And then uh, I don't think I'll end up doing a hot takes episode after the Florida, Florida game, because I'll be uh, in San Diego at the time, but uh, we'll, you know, if, if I'm able to, then I'll do it then. But uh, that's the, that's the plan for now. Before I go, I want to thank my third sponsor. That's garage makeovers down in Palm beach and Broward County. Uh, They're the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. If you're in those counties and you need any garage work, Give them a call. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. And as always, I want to thank my Patreon supporters above the bleach numbers level. That's Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, and Bert Bertoldi. And of course, make sure to catch that next podcast and leave five-star reviews. Please uh, go, out, go out of your way to leave five-star reviews. That definitely helps the podcast a bunch. I'm Jason Staples. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. Thanks for listening. I made this.